So please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22. If you turn to 2 Kings and just turn back one page, you'll be there. It's the very end of 1 Kings, and we'll actually be reading the end of 1 Kings and the first part of 2 Kings. Now, our passage this morning takes place, it's not a Christmas sermon, it takes place about 850 years before the birth of Christ, but nevertheless, like the whole rest of the Old Testament, it's, it's on the way. And King Ahab is dead. He leaves behind him a legacy of rebellion against the Lord, and another evil man, his son, will take the throne. How do they say it in England and France? The king is dead. Long live the king. And so it is on earth. Kings come and go. But in heaven there has been no change. There is no new authority on the throne in heaven. God is still there, and the fleeting kings and people of the world are judged by whether or not they submit to him. For Ahab, Ahaziah's son, part of that judgment will come soon, and God's word still rules. And my last sermon here a few weeks ago was on the death of King Ahab and the certainty of God's word. This morning, we will be looking at the death of King Ahaziah and the sufficiency of God's word. As we read it, I ask that you would examine your own hearts. Do we seek God's word as we ought? Do we submit to it? 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 51. This is God's word. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and he worshiped him and he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. That is the end of 1 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. 
he said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on top of the hill, a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? It's God's word. <clears throat> well, the news must have been all over Samaria. King Ahab is dead, shot through his armor by an arrow. Can you imagine the effect that this must have had on the people, the leaders of Israel? All at once, if you remember, all 400 of Ahab's false prophets have now been shown to be false. The Lord's prophet, Micaiah, who's probably sitting in prison somewhere, has been proven right. And at least all the leaders know it. Now soon, Ahab's son Ahaziah is proclaimed king, and he quickly takes up the family tradition of fighting against God. It didn't work well for Ahab, but who knows, maybe Ahaziah will have better luck. The last two verses of 1 Kings sum up his whole reign. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother, that is Jezebel, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. Like father, like son. It's foolish, really, 
Baal has time and time again been shown to be a fake god, but Ahaziah, for whatever reason, worships it. The Lord has been proven again and again to be the true God, and yet Ahaziah continues to fight against him. Why would he expect a different fate than the one his father just experienced? But old habits and old family traditions sometimes die hard. And fighting against the Lord has been the legacy of Ahab's family. But what use are traditions if they simply lead us astray? The true God has made himself known. He came to save us from the feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers. For in time of need, false gods are of no help to you. They cannot save you. They cannot do anything good for you. If you are looking for a Savior anywhere else in all of creation, you will find that Savior to be of no help at all in the day of trouble. When you are on your deathbed, there is only one place that you can look to. Not all the doctors in the world could be of any benefit. All the kings of the earth could not help you. There is only one Savior to look to, and anyone else will disappoint. How foolish and how sad to put your trust in a false religion in the time of your greatest need. And yet, that is exactly what Ahaziah does in our passage. There's really no way to know exactly how this silly mishap occurred. I suppose he was in the fancy ivory house that his father had built, one of Ahab's great accomplishments. He built this house in Samaria. Somehow, Ahaziah is up in the upper floor and he falls through the lattice, out the window, I guess, injures himself pretty badly, probably gets infected, and he thinks that he's going to die. And this is Seems like a silly way for a king to die. You'd like like to go out and battle or something at the end of a long reign. Here he's been here two years. Falls through the lattice. Now it's recorded for all history that this is what he's going to die from. But we must know that this is not some silly accident alone. We just read a story about how a a random arrow found its way through the air, hit Ahab while he was in disguise, right through a joint in the armor, and killed him. That's not random, right? God's in control of that. Ahaziah has also been fighting against God. Falling through the lattice work is not random either. Nothing is mere chance when a sovereign God is on the throne. And if you are fighting against that sovereign God, it doesn't matter how big your army is, or if you think you're safe at home, you're never safe if you're at war with the God of the world. So it can't be a complete surprise here that in the first verses of 2 Kings, uh, Ahaziah's kingdom and his home literally start to fall apart when we saw in the last verses of 1 Kings that he was fighting against God. Here we see Moab begins to rebel against Israel and Ahaziah falls through the lattice and suffers what will be a fatal injury. So now Ahaziah is injured. He's worried. 
he should be embarrassed as well. So he turns to his God of choice at the moment, Baalzebub, the God of Ekron. Now, Baalzebub, I'm not sure if this is uh, the author's uh, of Second Kings, his spin on on the name to make fun of this God because his name means the Lord of the flies or the Lord of a fly, Baalzebub. Doesn't seem to be the greatest God to turn to. Some people have speculated maybe it's because flies fly around infections and so that's where you go. I don't know. Whatever it is, it doesn't, it's not very noble God to turn to. But he's also the God of Ekron. Now, Ekron is 45 miles away over in Philistine territory that has already long been conquered by Israel. So why go all the way over there? It is, it shows, for one, perhaps how effective Elijah has been in removing priests of Baal in Israel. But also, it just goes to show the foolishness of, of Ahaziah to go all the way over to the God of the flies to ask if he'll survive, as if, as if there is no God in Israel. So uh, whatever the case, Ahaziah's messengers will not make it there. I don't know how far they get, but it's not too far. And Elijah is sent by the, the angel of the Lord to intercept them on their journey with this bad news. He says this, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now, notice how useless the king's actions are here. His false god never even gets the message if he had ears. And even if his messengers made it to Ekron, they would be of no benefit to the king. But his actions are worse than just useless. They're harmful. It says, the reason that God gives why Ahaziah will not get up from his bed is because he turned to the false god rather than to the Lord. So on the one hand, we see how useless and harmful false gods, false religions are. On the other hand, we see also God's knowledge and power. You know, Beelzebub shows up again in the New Testament. It's kind of surprising. It makes this passage look all the worse because people are accusing Jesus in the New Testament in Luke eleven fifteen that he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the master of the demons. So, in other words, Beelzebub is connected with Satan. Ahaziah has forsaken the Lord and gone to ask Satan for help, essentially. And you see how, how much of an affront this is to God. When he's there, all day long I have held my hands out to a disobedient, stubborn people. And yet, where are they running to? The gods of other places. But the god of Ekron doesn't really exist. It's an idol. He cannot help Ahaziah. The, the true god, he already knows the situation. He doesn't need to have messengers come to him. 
he sends his messenger to them. He knows that the king is injured. He knows where the messengers are. He knows where they're going. He knows why they're going to Ekron. He also knows the future, that the king will not recover. He will not even make it out of his bed. Now, how could Elijah have already known all these things if Yahweh is not real? And perhaps the fact that Elijah knew all these details was enough to convince the messengers that their journey was useless because it's implied that they didn't even complete their journey. They turned around. You can tell that the king is surprised at their early return. He says, why have you returned? Isn't it amazing that these messengers obeyed this, obeyed Elijah, not knowing it was Elijah, rather than obeying the king? There was something about the way he spoke or what he said that made them recognize that here was a higher authority than the king of Israel. And unfortunately, King Ahaziah doesn't have the same respect for God's word as his messengers did. Now, as soon as he hears this description of this stranger, which sounds a lot like John the Baptist later on as well, he knows it's Elijah the Tishbite, my father's enemy, my enemy. And so the very next verse, he sends out 50 soldiers. It doesn't tell us why he sends 50 soldiers to, to Elijah, but does it really have to? I mean, they're not there to give Elijah a parade. You know, they're, they're not there to protect him. Clearly, Ahaziah doesn't like the Lord. He doesn't like the Lord's prophets. He wants Elijah killed. Why else would you send a bunch of soldiers? So Ahaziah wants him either killed, arrested, silenced, something. Elijah had long been his father's enemy, his mother's enemy, and he wants him dead too. Now you can see in his attitude, toward, his attitude towards Elijah as well, the first captain comes with his 50 soldiers to where Elijah is, and he says, O oh man of God, the king says, Calm down. And the second one is more demanding. The king orders, calm down quickly. Now, Elijah's response might seem a little bit harsh. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. But this is something that clearly God approves from. Elijah doesn't send fire. It is fire from heaven. And the second time it says it's fire from God, right? The, the fire of God from heaven. So and the first group of 50 and their captain are destroyed. The second group of 50 and their captain are destroyed. 102 soldiers destroyed because of a king's stubborn foolishness. Well, what does all this tell us? Well, first of all, it tells us that Elijah is indeed a man of God. Secondly, uh, we see that God approved of Elijah's message. Elijah didn't send this fire, God did. And more importantly, doesn't it also show that Elijah's God is the real God? It wasn't that long ago that we saw fire come down from heaven another time, was it? On, 
Mount Carmel when Elijah was there up against 400 false prophets of Baal and a test to see who was the real God. And all day long, the prophets of Baal danced around the altar and cut themselves and yelled out, hoping that God would, their God would give some response, but no one heard, no one was listening, nothing happened. And then Elijah prayed a short little prayer. Fire, the fire of God came down from heaven, not on the people, but on the sacrifice instead. But it proved that God was the God of Israel and not Baal. So this is, in a way, another reminder to this stubborn man that Baal is not real. Baal cannot serve them. This is a proof that, one, Yahweh is the real God and that Elijah is Yahweh's servant. He is a man of God. And yet Ahaziah doesn't seem to get the message the first time. He sends 50 soldiers again. First he sends 50 soldiers, they're burnt to a crisp. He sends a second group of 50, and I wonder, were the soldiers still there, or was there just a burnt spot on the ground? And was it just a black mark on the ground where the other company used to be? Or was it a smoldering pile of soldiers? Now, two smoldering piles of soldiers when the third guy gets there. So after this happens twice, Ahaziah thinks to himself about, what should I do now? Let's try it again. Let's send a third captain, you, over there. I'm sure the guy was not very happy to have Ahaziah call on him and send out another group of 50. I wonder if this guy's ever had an original thought in his life. Or is it simply that he is so stubborn in his useless and wicked ways? I'm not sure. Either way, he sends a third group of 50 with a third captain who can't be very thrilled. But you can see that his attitude is completely different as he approaches Elijah. Although he is the one, the trained soldier, the captain, the experienced guy, and he's got 50 soldiers behind him approaching an old man wearing camel skin and a hairy guy with a leather belt This captain acts like he's the one who's surrounded. He's the one who's defeated. He's the one who must surrender. He's the one who is completely outmatched. His language is the language of utter surrender, unconditional. He bows down on his knees. He begs to be spared. And in so doing, this wise captain saves his life and the life of his 50 men. For you see... God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Why, he even gave grace to wicked King Ahab when he humbled himself, didn't he? Would he have given grace to Ahaziah if he had humbled himself before the Lord? Of course he would have. Look all through your Bible. You'll never see a time when someone comes to the Lord for mercy and God turns him away. It never happens. It never has happened. It never will happen. God is good. It's not just an attribute of him. It's who he is. He is good. He is merciful. He longs for sinners to be saved. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
but he is opposed to the proud. And so those who continue to be proud and fight against the Lord will find themselves in a losing battle. Now God is a jealous God. He is powerful. And although he is merciful, he demands and he deserves all our worship for all other gods are fake. But he is consistently merciful to those who humble themselves before him. Proverbs 3.34, To the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. And this God does not change. So this is not just a story about something that happened years ago. It's beneficial for us today. We see here a way to approach God, even if we, have, we know that we have been fighting against Him and living in sin. The one who repents and humbles himself before God and begs for mercy will find it. That is a promise. Now, you know this is the case for years later, God would send his own son, who also would be hunted down by the king. A great multitude of men and soldiers would come to Gethsemane to arrest him, armed with swords and clubs. But this time, he did not oppose them. This time, although he certainly could have, no fire was called down from heaven. When Jesus spoke and identified himself, it was enough to knock down all the soldiers. The power was there. But instead of them being destroyed, it was Jesus who was offering himself up to be killed precisely so that we could be shown mercy. He even healed one of the people who was there to arrest him. The reason was because Jesus came to die so that mercy could be shown to his enemies. That's why there's a meal here for you and I, even though we fought against the Lord, even though we deserve hell. Instead, he gives us himself. He gives us grace. He gives us mercy. And no one is happier when you repent and come to him than he is. He loves to see his children return. He loves to be a forgiving God. The wrath of God fell on Jesus for us. And if God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, then you can be absolutely sure that he will still be merciful to all who come to him through Jesus Christ. Here in our passage, we see the way of escaping God's wrath. At the cross, we see how that, that mercy is made possible. So the Lord tells Elijah to go with this third captain, and he assures him that he will be kept safe. And so he is. He goes straight to the king who wants to kill him, somehow emerges unscathed, and he gives him this message. Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god of Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. The third time we've now heard this. What does the king say? I hate to quote the rock, but it doesn't matter what he says. 
We're not told. The only thing that mattered was God's word. The next sentence tells you everything you need to know. So Ahaziah died according to the word of Yahweh. Again, brothers and sisters, we see the certainty and the power of God's word. But don't we also see the sufficiency of God's word stressed here as well? The fact of the matter is that there is a God in Israel. And Ahaziah should have gone to the Lord for help in his time of need. He doesn't just rebuke him that he's going to Ekron. He says, it's because there's no God in Israel? Why are you abandoning me, the fountain of living waters, to seek out cisterns that can hold no water? Why are you not coming to me? Jesus said something similar too. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is these that tell of me, and yet you will not come to me that you might have the life. Brothers and sisters, there is a God in Israel. He is willing to receive you. He is happy to receive you. And yet sometimes, why are we so slow to pray? Now, thankfully, none of you are going to Ekron to serve Beelzebub. But sometimes we can ne neglect God for other means. For instance, we might go to the doctor without ever praying. Doctors are good. Doctors are a great blessing. But there is a great healer who is much better than your doctor. And he is available for you to come to. Why are we not coming to him first? Why is he a God of last resort rather than our first recourse? Why don't we pray as we go to the doctor and seek his face? Why is it that we're much more inclined to use Google or Alexa or chat GPT to tell us you know, what we ought to think about things rather than speak to the creator of the universe? Is, there, is it because there is no God in Israel that we seek out the answers always somewhere else? Ahaziah made this mistake, not going to the Lord. Let us not make the same mistake. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that there is a God in Israel? That there is a God who is willing to receive you even now? And that in Him, in Christ Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are laid up for you in Him. If you believe it, go to Him. Seek His face. Seek His word. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me repeat that. That the man of God may be complete. Not only does God in other places 
forbid us from resorting to other superstitions and religions in determining our future. He assures us that his word is sufficient, that you might be complete. There are some people in churches who still go to horoscopes and things like that. One of the first things I had to figure out when I became a pastor initially and I was in Taiwan was when someone asked me what I thought about Tibetan singing bowls. And I did use Google to try to figure this out because I, didn't, I wasn't taught that in seminary. I had no idea what it was, but it's not good. But there, there is this syncretism that we sometimes have with worldly ways. It ought not be so in the church, seeking out horoscopes and other things for our future. We are to look to God's word and to him, to God himself. You are not to follow the error, the error of Ahaziah. You are not to go to other gods for help. You are to seek the Lord. Go to him in prayer. If you're lost, your Google Maps is great. If you're sick, go see a doctor. Don't neglect human wisdom. But examine your hearts. Have you tried to replace God's word, God's wisdom, with, with lesser things? How quickly is it that we go to see the Lord? Ahaziah's error is not simply that he went to Baal, it's that he didn't go to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us not make the same mistake. There is a God in Israel. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He has made himself available to you. Jesus says, probably in quoting, referencing the passage I read for the call to worship this morning, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So let us go to him in our time of need. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being our God and for not just letting us return to you like the prodigal son, but seeking us while we were lost and bringing us back. We pray that we would always turn to you and seek your face that we might live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.